Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. Why should we care what karma is? What does it apply to us? Are the original insights in some way grounded in contemporary clinical psychology or otherwise testable empirical research? All of those questions and more I will attempt to answer in tonight's talk. So settle in, relax, find your most comfortable seat, and here we go what the Buddha taught, which was a, an actually a, a very nuanced psychological insight to the nature of the human mind and how the human mind internally feels as a result of the intentions that we follow in our life. So I'm going to be reading from some of the uh, original suttas from 2,500 years ago, which lay out the original insights into karma in what's known as the Middle-Length Discourses, number 57, the Buddha lists and gives a very clear definition of the nature of karma. There's many other places he does as well. But he says that actions born of ill intention, which would, for example, be speaking harmfully or acting aggressively and violently to someone not out of self-defense, uh, becoming intoxicated, causing harm through sexuality or other means, that all actions born of ill intent have the capability of creating dark states of mind in the future. Dark states of mind, dark states of being. So he's talking about, as we'll see, internal feelings result. Actions born of harmless motivations, such as generosity, goodwill, gratitude, compassion, equanimity, um, appreciation of others' joys, lead to happy states in the future. And then acts that are born of muddled intentions or kind of rote Actions where we don't even think about what we're doing lead in the future to confused, muddled states of being. There's a fourth quality that is if we act out of a desire to not act upon others or to even just to be present and aware of the nature of the mind itself, i.e. if we meditate, then our future emotional states will be prepared for the experience of enlightenment or nibbana. In 
the Dhammapada, the Buddha, puts it very simply. All that we experience is preceded and shaped by mind. If you speak or act from harmful intentions, suffering and misery will follow one like a wheel follows a cart. But if we speak or act with a calm, bright heart, then happiness will follow you like a shadow that never leaves. It's an odd metaphor using the shadow for happiness, but whatever. Like all psychological insights, karma is not mechanistic. It's not predictable. In a very famous sutta, the Achintita, I can't remember exactly, Achintita, I think, um, the Buddha says something along the lines like, speculating about how one's actions will be experienced in the future leads to frustration even madness, just trying to figure out or predict whether a specific act will create a specific mind state. So the Buddha is not talking about one-on-one -on -one mechanistic external reward and punishment. He's talking about emotional internal responses to the actions that we author in our lives. In another sutta, the salt crystal, I believe, the Buddha says that uh, for some, harmful deeds lead to great suffering in the future. For others, very little. So it's very unpredictable. The Buddha is talking about patterns or, or motifs of behavior, not specific actions lead to specific results. If we think in terms of all we know about psychology and the way the mind works, then these are very easy ideas to grasp. But if we think in terms of a an external judicial system or an external God that's keeping track and uh, rewarding us for this and punishing us for that, then none of this will make any sense. So we have to understand that the, the psychology of the mind is not predictable. It doesn't, it's not governed by this kind of tit for tat, uh, scheme. One of, if not my, I would say one of my favorite teachings of all is the Kalama Sutta. The Kalama Sutta is a sutta where the Buddha it meets with a group of spiritual individuals, uh, a town really. And this group has been preached to by an array of different spiritual figures, Jains, Brahmins, uh, Hindu teachers, yoga, yogi teachers, and so forth. Um, there's so many spiritual traditions during the Buddhist time, and all these teachers come through, and by the time uh, the Buddha is invited to talk to them, they say to him, look, you know, we've heard great things about you, but at this point we've heard so many different views, we don't know who to believe.
And the Buddha says for himself, he says, um, don't believe me. Don't believe anything you've read, anything you've uh, heard, or anything that's common beliefs. See for yourself. It's known as the Charter of Free Inquiry in Buddhism. And the Buddha, after giving a basic talk on if you if you observe when you act over time from kind harmless intentions you start to feel better then he's laying the groundwork for this experiential idea that karma is not external it's an internal feelings and emotions that result due to how we act in regards to others. And then the Buddha goes on to say, suppose there is no life after death. Suppose there's no external paybacks for deeds done well or ill. Still, if you live and act from kindness and not from hatred, you will experience peace of mind. So again, he's saying that the fundamental insight he's teaching is not about, you know, that other people will kill you if you act harmfully or uh, the universe will meet out punishment or that in some future rebirth, if that even exists, that you'll have a better destination. No, he's saying here, the core of my teaching is that if you live and act free from hatred, and uh, harmfulness, then you will experience peace of mind. And then he goes on to give what I call the, the Dick Cheney lesson, which is sometimes we may see p painful results befall an evildoer, and sometimes evildoers get away with it. We don't see them experiencing any painful results. And what he's saying there basically is karma is internal. You can't see it. So I can't see, for example, what if Donald Trump will be experiencing the uh, uh, retributions for all of his horrific misdeeds. But I deeply believe deeply believe, not just because I've been a Buddhist practitioner for the last 50 years, but I date, well, 48, uh, but I deeply believe from my understanding of psychology that Trump's internal experience, as well as the internal experience of anyone who acts so selfishly and selfishly and harmfully, that they will experience uh, an internal state of distress um, that they will be in a very uncomfortable internal hell realm of their own. So it's not about that people who do good acts suddenly receive some kind of monetary recompense or if, that, if we do bad acts that suddenly uh some uh god out of the job teaching will 
ruin uh, and strip us of all that we own. No, not at all. The teaching is that there'll be an internal, emotional state that will rise over time that makes our internal experience so unpleasant. And that, of course, from the Buddhist teachings, is even worse than any external uh, physical material ramifications. So what is the justification for this insight into the nature of the human mind, that there's some innate punish, punishing or, um, I wouldn't say punishing, there's this innate uh, result that arises from the quality of our actions. Well, given the fact that we are a social species, our entire survival advantage came from maintaining secure affiliations and bonds. That's, you know, human beings, we don't have wings. We can't just, uh, <clears throat> we don't have shells for armor nor claws. So when it comes to survival alone, we're not like tigers that can kill off other predators. We are very, very vulnerable on our own. In fact, throughout almost all of our evolution, being kicked out of a clan would result in our death. So throughout the course of evolution, um, what we know from evolutionary psychology, the works of Robin Dunbar and Richard Wright and so many others, is that neural circuits developed to support bonding. We have two innate psychobiological bonding systems in the brain. The first is what cements core attachments, the attachments to caregivers and core relationships. And the region that does this is in the right orbital frontal. It's an implicit system that monitors the proximity of people that are important to us, such as parents when we're young, siblings, uh, close friends, uh, family members, and especially romantic partners in adult life. And when these figures aren't available or aren't present and responsive, our attachment systems go off and they encourage us through feelings of activations of the sympathetic nervous system to get closer to the people that matter to us. Now, this system is forged very, very early in life, about the, about 18 months. You can accurately predict a person's attachment system for the rest, most likely for the rest of their life. Attachment systems that are, are, uh, tested at around the age of one and a half years of age for toddlers will, will be in the exact same attachment style in our forties and fifties. So this region, the right orbital frontal, which holds our attachment beliefs is very, very fixed. It's very difficult to change. You can change it, but it takes years of effort, years of therapy, years of changing the way we go about our romantic 
life before we can switch from an insecure attachment system to a secure one. The region of the brain that holds our attachment patterns is not very neuroplastic. On the other hand, there's a second system in the brain which establishes tribal affiliations. And we know from the work of Matthew Lieberman, Naomi Eisenberger, Giorgio Solani, uh, the psychologists at the University of Munich, Heidelberg, and countless other studies, that during evolution, a region of the anterior cingulate cortex, the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex, to be specific, develop circuits to reward us for positive tribal actions and deter us from anti-tribal selfish actions. And these circuits were established to influence or predetermine our behavior or goad us to developing as many tribal relationships or securing the tribal relationships that we had because that's what allowed us to survive that's what allowed us to pass down our genes that's what gave us the greatest uh, success as a species our ability to bond together groups fight off predators better than sole lonely individuals especially when it comes to human beings it turns out that in all social mammals, which are mammals that have high levels of oxytocin, whether we're talking about voles or lobsters or certain primates, human beings, there's a significant secretion of serotonin in the very region, the anterior cingulate cortex, whenever we do an action of approach and bonding and positive um, affiliations. In fact, monkeys, when they move towards a stranger and start to groom and take care of that stranger, their anterior cingulate cortex floods them, their brain, with serotonin, which is, if you don't know, it's the mood boost. It makes us feel safe and at home. It's what it's the neurotransmitter that fights uh, anxiety that allows us to relax. The bulk of antidepressants today are serotonic. So the fact that there's this region in the brain that releases serotonin as well as endorphins that make us feel good when we act positively towards others is the very mechanism at the heart of what the Buddhists teaching on karma is all about. And what's even more important is that this region, the anterior cingulate cortex, is in the studies. There was this huge team of uh, Chinese neuroscientists that did a study of the anterior cingulate cortex and its release of serotonin. And they noted that in virtually all incidents, the amount and the secretion of serotonin was sufficient to reverse consolidation. And what that means is that that region of the brain is very flexible. It can constantly change. So there's no innate setting 
we are very depending upon how well we act towards others or how selfishly we act towards others will determine in variable amounts how much serotonin is released and over time that will create the karmic effect i'll feel better or i'll feel worse what's interesting is to note that people like Paul Bloom at Yale and Karen Wynn at MIT have shown that even babies less than a year of age have moral reactions to the actions of others. If you show uh, a little simple little play uh, to babies uh, where um, one puppet takes another puppet's uh, cookie or something like that. I really don't know what plays they actually did, so I'm making this totally up out of cl whole cloth, but I suspect it was something very simple. When babies are shown negative antisocial events, they look sad, but when babies are shown very simple narratives with puppets of positive compassionate kinds sharing that the babies start to feel happy they smile they clap approvingly and they look more and more relaxed so the theory is is that this pro-social inclination in this region is there for us starting pretty much from infancy and remains through the entirety of our life because positive affiliations were essential for our survival for the entirety of our life throughout our evolution. So karma is not top down. It's what's called bottom up. It stems from regions of the brain that are not conscious, that are not based on thought, but are based on observing how we act and then giving a feedback response. Just as the Buddha teaches in the Devadatta Sutta, uh, where he says, when, whatever one, whatever feelings one experiences, as I believe, whatever feelings one experiences, comfort, discomfort, or neither, all are conditioned. Conditions mean influenced by our past acts. So he's saying that karma is based on feelings and emotional states. It's not based on external material rewards. It's not based on uh, uh, anything other than over time, how we act will influence how we feel. The emotional mind in the Buddhist teachings, the citta niyama, are actions cause and condition these states of mind. So we know a couple of things more that are of influence when it comes to karma. The Buddha said that karma can take years to take effect. And what's interesting is that in many studies on the very basis of pro-tribal actions so show that in many ways, the outcomes grow stronger over time. So, for example, there was a study that Jonathan Haidt mentions in his book, The Happiness Hypothesis. If you give a bunch of graduate students $20 and you ask for, ask half of them to spend it on themselves, 
and half of them to give the $20 to someone else who needs it. And you tell them to do it within the next week. Well, if you ask them right after they make the, the decision to either spend it on themselves or they're told, some are told to spend it on themselves, others are told to give it to someone who needs it. If you ask them directly after, they'll have pretty much the same effect. They, they won't feel better or worse. But over three to five months afterwards, if you ask the people who spent the $20 on themselves, they'll have no appreciable bump on their self-esteem. They won't remember even how they spent it. They may not even remember the entire experiment very clearly at all. But if you ask the graduate students who were told to give the $20 to someone else, they will report appreciable bumps in self-esteem that they still feel. And not only that, they will also remember in detail who they chose to give the money to, why they chose to give it to that person, and they will feel better about themselves. So in other words, the further you get away from the altruistic event, the long-term emotional ramifications become clearer and easier to discern. So <clears throat> as these implicit anterior cingulate cortex states are always felt, not they're not thought, they're felt, they're bottom up, they're from unconscious regions of the brain. One thing that we know very clearly is that there's only an appreciable positive outcome if we are aware and see the positive, the results, the positive results of our actions. That's the strong, one of the strong factors. So if we work at a job where we are doing things that we ultimately believe will lead to some kind of good, there's much less positive feelings over time than if we actually do things directly with individuals that we see directly are helping them. On the other hand, it turns out that if we work in jobs that are harmful, even though we might not see the harm personally, there still is a, an appreciable diminishment in one's self-worth and one's mood over time. It's called moral wounds, and there's been a lot of studies over them that show that over time, if we work in such, in jobs that have, that we're where we're aware are taking an antisocial or harmful toll on other human beings, then we will not feel good about ourselves in the future. Most people won't, I should say. So, um, there's a lot of other studies I could go into. I was, as I was preparing this study, I read one about how mindfulness regulates the anterior insula, which allows us to not only be more aware of the qualities of our actions, but it allows us to be more empathetic when we're making choices 
about how to act. The insula, which is a region that reads the body and reports it to the frontal lobe. The body is where the anterior cingulate cortex creates its feelings of, you know, positive or negative where the serotonin levels drop or raise. So the more we meditate, the more we become aware and we stop and pause before we take actions. But what I'm going to end with is uh, a fundamental insight of the Buddhas, and that is what's called the five daily reflections. The five daily reflections that the Buddha urged all practitioners to bear in mind is one, a reflection of our own mortality so that whenever we make choices, we bear in mind the fleetingness of life, how little guarantees we have, and how uh, every, um, how we don't have unlimited time to undo poor actions and so forth. But the second insight of the five daily reflections, as you'll see, is also to remember that at the end all we really own, the Buddha teaches, is the karmic results of our actions. As he teaches in these five daily reflections, everything else, the, all the material rewards of our life, whether we wind up with uh, financial rewards or other kinds of tangible results, none of those will really matter as we move towards the end of our life, all that we'll, we'll be left with is the long-term emotional outcomes conditioned or resultant from the moral quality of our actions. So the five daily reflections go like this. I am of the nature to grow old. I cannot escape growing old. I am of the nature to become sick. I cannot escape becoming sick. I am of the nature to die. I cannot escape death. All that is dear to me, I will be separated from. And in the end, I am the owner of all my actions. All that I do for good or for bad, will determine my future existence. All that I do for good or for bad will determine my future existence. That, in a nutshell, is the Buddha's teaching on karma. So, I thank you for listening to this uh, oversight on what uh, the nature of karma is from the Buddhist perspective. I hope that something was in some way uh, useful for you. And now what we're going to do is we're going to practice uh, meditation where we also uh, employ the five daily reflections to develop a practice that
uh, can, that informs us or helps us remember the real important uh, concerns that we should consider before we make choices in our life. So thank you for listening. Find a really comfortable seated And I can't tell you that it will bring you good karma because that's not the way it works. But if you would like to support the work of a Buddhist pastor, well then, <laughs> here's my advertisement, you can Venmo to keep me going as a, as a, both a counselor and teacher. And it's the Venmo's Dharma Punks with an XNYC. So thank you for that. And now let's meditate. So finding that good position, if you're sitting upright, then just make sure your body is balanced. If your body is really upright and comfortable, then really the only effort we have to put in is simply to just focus our attention. That's pretty much it. On the other hand, if our body is imbalanced, we're leaning forward or back, then we have to put not only effort into focusing attention, but we also will wind up with a lot of ancillary uh, strains, discomfort in the body, and then we'll be caught up with all that. So simply finding a really balanced position, if your body's balanced, then your muscle groups don't have to put any effort into sustaining your posture. On the other hand, for those that are simply lying down on a uh, bed or floor or a couch, just allow your body to fully relax into the support. But the effort then will be on staying awake if you do fall asleep, it's not a failure, but you won't be accruing any of the real benefits from having a meditation practice. So there's no real problem with falling asleep other than it simply deprives us of all of the benefits. And there are many, many, many wonderful benefits of meditation. If you want, look up the work of, uh, I'll tell you afterwards, but there's a great clinician at Harvard who's done a lot of research into all of the benefits of a meditation practice. So just finding that nice, comfortable position and then just turn your attention to the sounds around you. Noticing whatever sound is present at this very moment, not clinging on to any sound. Just keep attention on whatever auditory events are happening 
in your direct proximity. You can pay attention to the sound that seems to be arising from the most distant location. I can hear sounds stemming from a street fair that's a couple blocks from where I live. And bring your attention to the sound that is closest to you. So there's a fan very close to me and one of my cats nearby is impatiently meowing, trying to get access into this room. And then there are sounds from the middle distance, cars passing by, a plane passing overhead just this moment. People walking on the street outside. Motorcycle passing. On our block. So just hearing the sounds, we don't even need to visualize the source of the sounds. Although labeling sounds can be helpful. It actually, when we label experience, it helps regulate our emotional state. So if we're anxious or angry, simply noting labeling experience has been shown to calm the nervous system. So now bringing this non-judgmental, curious attention to the sensations in the body associated with breathing. So for some of us, we'll bring our attention perhaps to the nose, the nostrils, just feeling the breath entering and leaving. Or for some, we might just feel the energy of the inhalation expanding the chest and then the exhalation, this or the release, or the settling of the diaphragm. Or perhaps we'll pay attention to the abdominal region, the soft, bloated belly that results from the in-breath, and then the subtle release of 
of the exhalation. In early Buddhist practice, there was in the Buddhist teachings of the breathing meditation, it's mentioned one can become aware of the entire breathing body. So that would mean feeling the energy first in the abdomen, up to the chest, then the shoulders, and then the head, and then with the release of the exhalation, the subtle movements of the head, neck, shoulder, chest, belly, associated with breathing out. If any other sensations or feelings arise, that's fine. Don't try to push them away. Just allow them to be there. The same goes for mental images or thoughts. The practice is not to try to suppress thoughts or push thoughts away, but simply to focus attention on the bodily sensations of breathing. It's a little bit like being at a crowded gathering of people. There's a lot of noise everywhere and maybe some people in the background that are acting either really seductively or foolishly but we're with a friend and we're paying attention to our friend who's close by and we're not allowing our attention to be subsumed or distracted by everything else all around us. We're just keep bringing our attention back to our friend that we care about. Perhaps it's a child or a it could be just someone who is vulnerable that we want to take care of. So when other thoughts or mental images arise, just allow them to be in the background and just keep your attention on your best friend your body breathing, after all, that's what's keeping you alive. Your thoughts don't keep you alive. It's your body breathing that does. So give it the appreciation that it deserves.
If ever there are any strong 
physical sensations outside of the breath, a pain or any other sensation. Don't try to ignore it, bring your attention to it. Allow yourself to breathe into that region. If you need to adjust something to make it more bearable, do that. And if it remains distracting, then allow yourself to spend breaths observing the sensation and then bring your attention back to the areas of your body where the breath is most clearly articulated and then bring attention back to the area that's painful for a few breaths and then bring your attention back to the belly, chest, the front of the body where you feel the breathing most clearly and then go back and forth between whatever is seeking your attention and then back to the internal experience of ventilation, breathing.
Uh, bringing your attention to the heart center, the chest, where we feel that expansion and contraction of breathing. And if you want, putting a hand on the heart center, just resting it upon the upper chest, if you like. And just bring to mind the reflection that one day this body will breathe no more, that every breath is precious, for there's only so long that a body can continue to breathe and live. And then we do the five daily recollections. I am of the nature to grow old. I cannot escape aging. I am of the nature to become sick. I cannot escape the possibility of illness. I am of the nature to die. I cannot escape death. All that is dear to me, I will be separated from. Finally, I am the owner of all my actions. All that I do for good, or bad will determine my future existence. I am the owner and heir to my actions. We reflect on this so that we can appropriately guide our lives to peacefulness and well-being. <laughs> 